The growing military presence along Ukraine's eastern border has thrown international politics into chaos, but the buck doesn't stop there. Given that Russia is the world's second largest supplier of natural gas, behind only the US, and provides Europe with 40% of its supply, the world of energy has been thrown into crisis too. While the Nord Stream 2 pipeline hangs most prominently in the balance, so do the investments of hundreds, if not thousands, of players worldwide, both in European energy and abroad. So, what can energy investors expect in the coming days, weeks, perhaps even months or years? In this edition of Spotlight, we'll use internal PEI data alongside expert insights to evaluate how the Ukraine crisis might impact investments in natural gas and current energy portfolios. I'm Isabel O'Brien with Infrastructure Investor. We are connected by the immobile cross-border capital-intensive fixed infrastructure. That's Andrei Konoplyanik. He's a professor and currently advises the Director General of Exports at Gazprom, Russia's state-owned natural gas company and the country's largest natural gas company, which owns both the Nord Stream 1 and Nord Stream 2 pipelines. He also sits as the Russian co-chair of the Russia-EU Gas Advisory Council's internal market work stream and formerly served as the Russian Deputy Minister of Fuel and Energy and the Executive Director of the Russian Bank for Reconstruction and Development, amongst other positions. This does mean that both Russia and European Union are part of what I call broader energy Europe. We are two common parts, integrated parts of the same engineering system. That's why we're interdependent and we are obliged, we need to uh, discuss common issues because they are presenting common risks, common uncertainties, additional incremental costs, which might diminish the welfare of both European Union and Russia. As you might have guessed, it's difficult for him to understate the importance of EU-Russian gas trade. There is no alternative today in the European Union to Russian gas. No alternative to keep the balance, yes? Why so? Russia has strong competitive positions among other pipeline gas suppliers to the European Union, yes? Groningen field in Netherlands will be soon closed. The question is uh, this year, next year, yeah? Norway is facing falling production, yeah? UK became already a gas importer. Algeria has limited production capacity and now they're facing transit problems uh, with uh, Morocco, yeah? Alternative Azeri supplies are insignificant and they face uh, quite big resource risks because uh, all these Azeri supplies originate from one single Shagdenis field. But alternatives for Russian gas will only be needed in the case of an invasion, right? What this will do under almost any scenario, even if the crisis is over tomorrow, is it will strongly enforce the impetus for the European Union to wake up and to diversify its supplies in coal and in natural gas. That's Christoph Rohl. I'm a senior research scholar at CGIP, which is the Center of Global Energy Policy at Columbia University. Before joining the Columbia faculty, Rohl served in a variety of positions, including as the chief economist at British Petroleum and most recently as the global head of research at the Abu Dhabi Investment Authority. I'm a macroeconomist by training. And when I was in Russia, and I was the chief economist there for the World Bank, and also when I was at the EBRD before that, I was not an energy specialist at all. That was long before I joined BP. And so I didn't pay that much attention to energy other than as an input into the general economic situation and, and its geopolitical role. I'm not interested in guessing what's going to happen in Ukraine. I am going to leave that up to the political analysts. But yeah, I guess if we're talking about, you know, the two broad scenarios that might happen, Russia's made it pretty clear that if there is conflict, they're going to cut back on gas exports. 
the U.S. and Germany, I feel, have made it clear that they would halt Nord Stream 2, even if there is a diplomatic solution. It's hard to imagine that energy investment trends aren't going to be impacted, even if it's not the worst case scenario of an armed conflict. So I don't know if you have any opinion on how you think energy investment trends are going to be impacted by this. So let me answer by sort of going from the outside in. I do indeed agree that it's not much point in engaging in this guessing game. You know? There will be an invasion or there will be an incursion, as President Biden has made the difference, or there will be nothing or there will be a diplomatic solution, who knows? I do think that the consequences are already pretty dramatic. Natural gas will be needed in Europe in the short term because there's no alternative, in the long term because you cannot repeat, you cannot replace it by renewables. And so these geopolitical frictions in Europe, which we are seeing now, they will accelerate the shift towards LNG and decelerate pipeline dependence. But that's not the driver of it. So this is it's an accelerator. Rule isn't alone in his line of thinking. I would say LNG is really the future of international gas trade over the next two decades. That's Jonathan Stern, a distinguished research fellow at the Oxford Institute for Energy Studies in the UK. If you have LNG projects that are either under construction or they're in a, an advanced state of readiness, then maybe that's a very good place to be for the next few years. If you can see a project which you think has low costs in relation to the markets and in particularly to Asia, where you would deliver it, then that would seem to me to be very attractive because I see Asia as continuing to need natural gas and particularly LNG just because it's so difficult to build international pipelines these days. If you have an attractive looking LNG project, that would seem to me to be a pretty good place to start for thinking about an investment. What we are seeing now is the developing of a globalized natural gas market, not dissimilar from the oil market. Roll again. Natural gas was always historically a fuel which was transported in pipelines. Now, what does that mean? If you have a pipeline, then essentially you have one supplier produces the gas, puts it in the pipeline, and you have one customer who gets it out of the pipeline. You have no market in between them. So these people have to find a price, and the only way they can do it is through making some contract, some sort of negotiations. Typically, in history, that problem was solved by tying the price of natural gas to the oil price, eliminating some of the wild fluctuations and so on. Now introduce LNG, liquefied natural gas. You cool it down, you put it in a ship, you, you can bring it anywhere. And all of a sudden, it functions like a ship full of bananas. And that's a globalized market where supply and demand are price responsive, balanced immediately, where you don't have long-term contracts as a rule. As a rule, you need spot prices to make full use of that flexibility. Russia is not interested to deliver gas on non-contractual basis, which means only on the spot basis. I will just explain why. Andrei Konoplyanik again. Because we are a producer, we are not reseller, we are not intermediary company. We are not just buying some other's gas and resell it to another. We are investing in our own gas production and in our own gas delivery. That's why we shall do this on the long-term basis. That's investment tool. Long-term contracts for us is an investment tool. So no matter what the geopolitical outcome of the crisis is, Europe, alongside the rest of the world, is looking toward liquefied natural gas. And the Russians, though active in the LNG space, are mainly sticking to their pipelines. You might be thinking by now that all signs are pointing away from investing in midstream and upstream assets. 
but you might want to think again. Europe has today uh, LNG regasification capacities uh, which exceeds 200 billion cubic meters, which is more than a maximum of Russian gas supplies to the European Union. That's why in our conversations with our colleague from Europe, from time to time, we've heard that, well, Europe can substitute Russian gas by LNG. My always answer was, no, you can't. And there is a number of reasons, in addition to this uh, price arbitrage idea. There are just physical limitations for this. Why it can't uh, substitute Russian gas supplies? Why LNG can't do this? It cannot substitute Russian gas supplies since all LNG regasification terminals are located at the European coast. And all delivery points of Russian gas are located in the middle of continental Europe, where a lot of customers are located as well. And all infrastructure and all logistics in Europe is developed according to this geography, not uh, according to the potential supply from the coast into the continent, but according to the supplies from the eastern part of the continent through the continent. And uh, Europe has limited pipeline connections from coastal LNG regas terminals to the center of the continent. Its throughput is equal to about only one quarter of LNG regas capacities. So even if uh, Europe will regasify all its LNG volumes that come to its LNG regas capacities, it will not be possible to supply it because there is limitation in the pipeline capacities that are connecting these LNG regas capacities with the central of Europe. Private equity firms, they're sort of cleverly packaging the upstream energy production investment as growth and opportunistic vehicles to cover a wide range of industries. That's my colleague. Hi, I'm Mustafa Benassim. I'm one of the researchers for PEI Media. I oversee the infrastructure investor platform. I think our last research period was from 2016 to Q1 2021. I don't know if you have any numbers on how much of that was invested in assets like well, energy broadly, but natural gas and um, natural gas distribution in particular. What we've seen is that sector-specific fundraising has been in par with sector-agnostic capital raising. To specify the numbers, 51 billion was raised for sector-specific funds, which were the biggest contributors were renewables, telecoms, digital and energy infrastructure. And the remaining 68 billion was raised for sector-agnostic funds. These include your natural gas, energy pipeline, transition distribution, and overall diversified sector capital. Now, in terms of percentage terms, about 38% was going to sector-specific funds, and the remaining 62% was going to sector-agnostic funds. So there is currently ICG running after a major stake in the gas pipeline owner Seagas, which operates over 700-kilometer energy pipeline in Australia. Last year, Brookfield agreed to pay $6.8 billion for Canada's fourth largest pipeline company, a day after it's closed its $7 billion green transition fund. In the process of development of the markets, the new energies, the new instruments, the new players, the new contractual structures, the new pricing mechanisms, they are coming not instead of the existing ones, but in addition to existing ones. Andre Konoplyanik again. And then new competitive balance is defined in the markets, either by market forces or by market forces with the influence uh, of the governments. The new balance. But uh, I am quite confident that in such countries, for instance, continental countries, that my country, United States, China, uh, even continental Europe, the pipeline gas will stay. Because LNG definitely, when we are speaking about the large-scale LNG, that definitely profitable or economically feasible to supply it for the long distances. So from that point of view, complementarity 
is the key driver. And that does mean that we are always adapting ourselves to the new competitive mix. And that's provided an opportunity for this or that energy, for this or that te te technology, either to win its competitive niche or to lose its competitive niche. So it will be not administrative substitution. As sometimes people are saying that LNG will kill the pipeline gas because everybody will go for LNG. No, that will not be the case. But what about the potential white elephant in the room? Could the cancellation of Nord Stream 2 scare off investors from pipeline assets? Christoph Roll doesn't think so. Investments which are not used, like a you know white elephant pipeline or something, or refinery, are very rare. I wouldn't be able to come up with many ex examples because this is more like a chess game rather than a day-to-day -day, you know, or quarterly reporting game. And that's how it looks like. And that, I don't think, will change because of that crisis. Do you think that's becoming a bit more common, though? It makes me think of, you know, the Keystone XL oil pipeline, which was cancelled and uncancelled. And, you know, Nord Stream 2 is in the midst. So the risk is a political risk, not a commercial risk. That's very important. You know, infrastructure projects, especially once they have been started or completed, they're sitting ducks. They're easy. Everybody's victim. And so the risk is political, both in terms of geopolitics, uh, that you're in somebody's way, and also uh, in terms of the taxman. We are in, an, in a macro situation where a lot of debt will have to be paid, and then what do you do? You, you tax those things which can walk, houses and infrastructure, you know? <laughs> to the extent yeah. that it's private at least. Yeah. While Andre Konoplyanik agreed there were political and legal risks associated with pipeline construction and maintenance, he disagreed on the commercial aspect. When you're coming through the different sovereignty, this country has an opportunity to establish its own rules, etc., etc., which not necessarily need to be uh, comfortable for these long-term supply contracts, which is the key, let me say, element of the Russian gas trade policy, which means with Gazprom or Gazprom expert, the uh, ownership right for the pipeline system and to responsibility to maintain the system and to organize the regime of access to this system stays now with the hands of transit states. And second level is these technical risks, because if responsibility, so ownership of these transit pieces of these pipelines now belongs to transit states, it's their responsibility to maintain them adequately. And so their technical status is the second level of transit risk. And only further on, it might be these political tensions between different countries, which will create mostly, let me say, the risks for insuring companies, yes? Because the costs, uh, financial costs of insurance, for instance, if the gas from Russia coming through Ukraine, and Ukraine is stating that, well, they are in the state of war with Russia because Russia is the official enemy in the uh, military doctrine of Ukraine, all the insurance companies definitely, let me say, will put their higher risk premium for all the insuring of all the contracts that are coming through these territories. So technical risks here is the most important element. Whether the market is pushed away from pipeline assets or not, it's clear that the current crisis in the Donbass will not spell the end of natural gas. In fact, it may do the exact opposite. Christoph Rule again. People will not start fantasizing about windmills and solar infrastructure if they can't heat their homes in the winter. And affordable and functioning energy security at the moment, also in Europe, that means fossil fuels because the share of fossil fuels is so much larger and because of the intermittency problem renewables have. And in this specific situation created by the Russia-Ukrainian standoff over Ukraine, it means natural gas, very clearly. And so we will find ourselves in a situation where natural gas infrastructure, that is largely the import of natural gas, either from pipeline from elsewhere like Norway, uh, Holland, the North Sea, or, more importantly, new infrastructure terminals, loading terminals for LNG imports, will get an impetus no matter how the current situation is going to be resolved. And it will be a powerful and a long-term impetus. And 
that input was will be reinforced by some of the potential investors and funds and their interest redirected from uh, infrastructure for the energy transition towards this intermittent step of natural gas. And just to underline that point, the European Union itself, quite unrelated to the Russia drama, has just qualified natural gas and nuclear power as clean fuels, much against the resistance of many and some member states, including the biggest, uh, Germany. So to take a simple example of what the European Union is already responding to that. Uh, there was a meeting recently of what is called the EU-US Energy Council. And typically they talk about long-term developments, you know, climate change and transition and markets. Now, of course, it was all dominated by the uh, Ukrainian events. But still, the whole agenda in the run-up to the meeting was about integrating systems. And so, for example, within Europe, the Iberian Peninsula has their own electricity network, basically, because there's mountains in the way to northern Europe and there's LNG available in southern Europe. So now they're thinking about how to synchronize that. A good example for how the events in the Ukraine accelerate developments. Again, to see how when push comes to shelf and when energy security becomes a serious issue, how the energy transition takes a backseat, whether one likes it or not. How this will square with the macro trend towards increased investing in renewable energy is tricky, as Jonathan Stern puts it. He doesn't see the impetus on natural gas to be quite so long term. Now, the European net zero targets for 2030, if they are going to be met, mean that Europe will have to reduce its unabated natural gas consumption by about 20 to 25 percent by 2030. That means that nobody is going to invest in new long life assets which won't pay off for another 20 years. What it might mean is that there could be some short-term investments, perhaps in storage, perhaps in additional interconnection, but that would be not in the big markets in Europe, but probably in the smaller markets in the southeast of the continent. But again, it's going to be very specific to individual types of asset that contribute to security and probably in countries where they are particularly dependent on Russian gas and they don't have LNG access. I would focus on LNG and I would focus on the short term. Where do you want to be post that? And that is the tricky question, because then I come back to the question of, well, for Europe, in any case, you've got net zero targets. So these things become really, really complicated. An LNG project usually takes four or five years to build after you actually get started with it. Uh, four or five years in terms of carbon reduction targets in Europe is going to be a very long time. Mm -hmm. And you have to make a bet on how that will work out in relation to gas. Christoph Rule is not of the opinion that people should wait around to see how things play out. He says there's an established need for more infrastructure investment, and that's not about to change. Uh, so the risk is not in having it or not. The risk now is how early you want to move. There is a risk that something bad happens, in which case early movements. Nobody moves that early, no? but in which case you may be in the wrong location at the wrong time or something like that. So how can infrastructure investors best assure that they're in the right place at the right time? Jonathan Stern again. Let me just say this. In 2014, when the hostilities between Russia and Ukraine started, the Russians took over Crimea. There were a loads of op-ed pieces, policy statements about Europe has got to reduce its dependence on Russian gas. In the next five years, Europe increased its dependence on Russian gas by 40-40%. So what I would say is the current situation is not easy to predict. 
But believe me, I've spent four decades of my life working on Russian and European gas, uh, well, Soviet gas before then, and the outcomes tend to be unpredictable. So we shouldn't make any assumptions about the future. As per usual in the world of infrastructure investing, hours of research and buckets of expertise can only get you so far. There is no definitive answer to the question of what will happen in the Dunbess and how energy markets will respond. Nevertheless, if you want to learn more about broader trends in the natural gas market, be sure to check out our deep dive, Valuing the Future of Natural Gas, in the March issue of Infrastructure Investor. That's all for today. If you want to hear more episodes of Spotlight, you can check us out wherever you listen to your podcasts or at PEI's various titles online. And if you liked what you heard, please leave us a rating and review. For Infrastructure Investor, I'm Isabel O'Brien. Thanks for listening.